I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. For me, there are a few things better than heading out to a music venue and discovering a new band or performer. Of course, it's a nice bonus if I get to catch and act just before it becomes a national sensation. I saw them win, right? That is a part of the beauty of independent music venues. Up and coming artists can play and grow their fan base. But they're not only steps on the ladder to stardom. They're intimate spaces that really connect everyone, musicians and fans, to experience the seeing of live music. I mean, that is a big part of what Music City is supposed to be about, right? But as development accelerates and property values explode, indie venues are left in a tough spot. Some have been forced to close their doors. Today, we'll check in on local venue owners and musicians and find out how the city might be able to help preserve these spaces. Do you love independent music videos, music venues? What memories do you have? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. But first, for a second year in a row, the state legislature has passed a host of measures aimed at restricting what transgender Tennesseans can do. Some schools have refused to enforce these laws, but their refusal could soon come with a price. Here to tell us more is WPLN's afternoon host, Mariana Bacayao. Mariana, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks for having me. How's it going? It's good. It's good to have you here for the first time. <laughs> so tell me, what made you decide to report on this? Well, I think as a host in the afternoon, I'm always keeping an eye on uh, breaking news stories. And a lot of things that I've covered just sort of in the day to day have been, you know, this anti-trans bill was signed. It goes into law at this time. This lawsuit just got filed. This lawsuit has a ruling. They've issued a temporary injunction. So it just seemed like a whole lot of stuff happening Uh mm. In that regard, um, and I really wanted to hear, you know, directly from trans students that are impacted by this, from trans advocates and trans educators uh, that are in uh, metro schools, because for the most part, a lot of the reporting that I had done previously is just, you know, write up this press release. It's happening right now. So I wanted to take that step back and really look at the bigger picture. So tell me, what bills have passed the state legislature in the past two years referring to anti-trans laws? So there have been a couple. Um, there's there's a bathroom bill, but the tricky thing about that is there's actually two separate bathroom bills uh, restricting okay. how transgender Tennesseans can use the bathroom. Uh, the first one is specifically trans students not allowing them to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender. Uh, the other was a bill that as of a couple weeks ago was successfully litigated against in court uh, that would have made businesses in Tennessee put up a warning sign if they allow transgender Tennesseans to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender. Hmm. Uh, it had, you know, based the language of the law, it would have had to have been like a yellow and red sign. They had very specific... Uh, language on what could actually go on the sign. It had to say something that, you know, this establishment allows people to use the bathroom regardless of biological sex, which the judge found, you know, we don't reference biological sex on the bathroom markers that we have in place already. Hmm. So, like, how many have been proposed? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so many more. Um, 
there have been a handful, but not everything advances far enough to get attention from advocates. Uh, there was one measure that didn't pass this session. It also didn't fail. It was deferred, so it will be revisited again sometime in the future. But it would have shielded teachers from federal discrimination laws if they referred to a student with the wrong pronouns. Hmm. Um, there's also, going back, there's a measure that passed last session that prevents, you know, trans girls from playing on the girls' sports teams in K-12 through public schools. This session, we saw that revisited with, um, you know, expanding that ban to collegiate sports. But then also, you know, there's a lot of schools in Nashville that haven't really been enforcing these laws. And so there's been some, or there's been a bill that goes into effect at the end of this month that would take school funding away from schools that don't comply with that law. So now there is, Mm. you know, a financial component to that. You know, one of the people you interviewed is public school student Lennon Freitas. Let's listen to what he said about coming out as trans. And it's just so much better. If I had stayed in the closet and if I never came out because I was scared, I would have been miserable. So it sounds like even though there are these laws targeting trans kids like him, Lennon doesn't regret coming out. You know, I wonder what else did he tell you about making his decision? Yeah, so Freitas' family actually came here from California where there's more protection for trans students. Uh, he jokes that he waited until he was in an unsafe space before hmm. he came out. He went to five different schools before going to Nashville School of the Arts, which has a reputation for being inclusive, but it's audition only. You know, for this story, he even let me watch his audition in which he did a monologue from Dear Evan Hansen, which... I mean, as myself, a former uh, theater kid in high school, you could not have gotten me to send anything I did into the public radio station. So I know people call trans kids brave, but this guy's on a whole nother level. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Now, you know, most of these laws specifically target trans youth. What did you hear about the effects on them? Yes. So there's, in a sense... For the specifically for the bill that would prevent trans students from playing on their sports teams, you know, there's a lot of physical and mental health benefits that come from playing on a school sports team. You know, mm-hmm. you have the exercise, you have that sense of belonging. And I mean, all adolescents really need that sense of belonging in order to thrive. And then with regards to the pronouns bill, I mean, I know you yourself were an educator at some point. Yeah. It, can you imagine like being a student and if I just randomly wanted to refer to you with she, her pronouns, you probably wouldn't want to mentally check into my class. You wouldn't do your best. And so there's a sense of like, this is going to affect the grades of trans students. Yeah. Yeah. I went through that in the second grade after my family changed our last names. My teacher refused to call me by my new name and it went through a whole big deal, Board of Education in Baltimore County. I'll let my parents come on one day (laughs) and tell us that story. But I'm curious about any of the legal battles that have developed because of these bills. So there's, I guess, a legal battle for every single bill, I think at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, Two Wilson County parents signed onto a lawsuit backed by the Human Rights Campaign against the bill that prevents trans students from using the bathroom. Both of those plaintiffs have decided to leave the state. Uh, And then 
The ACLU filed a lawsuit on behalf of a Knoxville student last year against the ban on trans athletes. But despite that still going through the courts, uh, the General Assembly decided to move forward on a bill that sort of doubles down and enforces that financial penalty for schools Hmm. that defy the law. So why now? Like, do you have a sense of why the state legislature is proposing so many bills targeting trans students? Well, this is all speculation, but I have heard from advocates who say part of it is, you know, part of it is the climate. We're not just seeing this in Tennessee. Florida had the don't say gay bill. Um, So actually this past legislative session, the ACLU of Tennessee puts the number of anti-LGBT bills in general at 14, which ties us with Iowa for the for the highest number of trans bills or anti-LGBT bills that's both passed and proposed. Um, So you're seeing this everywhere, but also, you know, we're coming up on an election year and a lot of lawmakers want to go back to their constituents with something that they've done. And this is one of those things. You also spoke with Harry Seaton, trans ACLU advocate. Here he is talking about his outlook on his activism. It's hard to tell someone it gets better when they don't see that path, because I definitely didn't growing up. I know that it sucks and like people don't want to say that like it sucks but you are seen and you are so respected and loved by thousands of people across the state and across the nation and you know i don't want to say it gets better um, because it is a cheesy cheesy phrase but there's a lot of life left to live tell me mariana have you spoken to other advocates i have i think in a lot of ways, they they share Seton's uh, outlook. You know, even though we're talking about these laws that are, you know, everybody's saying it's this feeling of moving backwards. Mm. Uh, you know, laws don't always align with like what is socially accepted in our culture. And it's interesting because there's this concern over where these laws are going to take the trans community. But also that like, in recent years, things have gotten better. There's more acceptance. There's more of a community. Um, and that maybe like on the horizon, things are ultimately looking better. Um, Seton actually, he graduated from a Hendersonville uh, high school here in Tennessee. And even just looking back at his experience, the next generation, he says, you know, they have it better. And there is a sense of we are moving forward. What about the schools themselves? Like, what are they doing to support the trans students in their population? Well, I think uh, I did talk to a counselor for Metro Nashville Public Schools uh, who is non-binary. So there is there is an element of, you know, having other LGBT people in education to support these students. Um, and he is the co-chair of GLSEN, which does, you know, outreach and training with all of Tennessee, not just here in Nashville. And he says, like, even in these rural areas, there are teachers who want to do right by their trans and queer students. So with these new penalties that come into effect, I wonder, is that going to affect the support that these kids are getting? That's yeah, it's interesting. I I asked and I don't think anybody can concretely say at the moment how like that financial penalty is really going to impact schools. Um, I mean, in the language of the bill, it mentions like 
specifically the student has to play on the team that matches the gender on their birth certificate. The school, I guess, would have access to the birth certificate, but if they're not enforcing it, then you know how are you really <laughs> mm-hmm. how how are you really going to police that? Um, and so there are ways in which teachers and educators are sort of trying to get around these laws, but you know if a parent complains, you know sometimes it just takes one parent to complain. I know we've talked about like the bills that are specifically targeting trans students, but something that surprised me in my reporting is also, you know, the the textbook commission that's been established. That's essentially um, an appointed board that reviews mm-hmm. what st- like what librarians can put on their shelves. And if, you know, somebody out in Cookville complains about a book that has a trans character in it, that book could be taken off the shelves all over the state, including here in Nashville. Um, so those are sort of the things to look out for. That is WPLN's Mariana Bacayao. Mariana, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, this is Music City. That title gives us the impression that we've got a thriving independent music scene. But as development accelerates and property values explode, that scene is under threat. After the break, we'll learn why some Nashville, some of Nashville's most iconic and favorite independent music venues are closing their doors and what the city can do about it. Do you love independent music venues? What memories do you have? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Last month, the complex that included Mercy Lounge, the Cannery Ballroom, and the High Watt closed its doors for the last time. Patrons and musicians alike paid tribute. There may still be music venues there at some point, but it definitely felt like the end of an era. And it was an increasingly familiar feeling. A favorite independent music venue shutting down because of new owners who either didn't see the value or saw it all too well. How are venue owners feeling about this and what can the city do to help? My next guests are here to help answer those questions. Chris Cobb is co-owner of Exit In and president of Music Venue Alliance Nashville. He is joined by Metro City Council member Jeff Syracuse, who is also heading, helping to head up the new Office of Music, Film and Entertainment. Chris, Council Member Syracuse, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. Happy to be here. Really good to have you both with us. So last week, our sister station, WNXP, asked listeners to send in some of their favorite memories, seeing live music in independent venues here in Nashville. Let's listen to a few of those. One of my favorite Nashville venue memories is from this past March, going to Cannery Ballroom to see the band Parquet Courts. Um, This was my third time seeing them, but my first time seeing them with my son, Hunter. It was just a great show, amazing energy, and as it turned out, our last time seeing a show at that venue before they closed their doors for good. Um, bittersweet for sure, but I'll always appreciate all the great bands, the great times I had there. I wanted to give a shout out to the Exit Inn. Um, the first fall I lived here, I went to a David Bazan solo show. Um, and as a lifelong Pedro the Lion fan, uh, I didn't know what to expect. But at the encore, he played this really beautiful, almost haunting rendition of Hallelujah. 
Um, and at the bridge, his voice cracked um, and broke, and I, I cried uh, for the first time at a live show. Um, and the whole, you could feel the whole room kind of take a gasp in. Um, I have since cried at many shows, but that uh, was the first time I remember crying uh, at live music, and it has resonated with me uh, all these years later. Exit In will always hold a special place in my heart, uh, and David Bazan is uh, a treasure. My wife, Levy and I have gone to a handful of shows since we've moved to Nashville a few years back. We couldn't choose just one, so here's, here's a few. Uh, we saw Wallows at the Blue Room, Bleachers at Marathon Music Works, Wet Leg and Nikki Lane at the Basement East. And Casey Musgraves actually played at Ernest Tubb Record Shop when she was promoting her Christmas album one year. So uh, we're pretty fortunate to live in a place where you can see a diverse array of music at really cool venues. Some of my favorite indie music venue memories have been at the Stone Fox, RIP to the once great restaurant and music venue over in the Nations. Saw some great acts there, Nikki Bloom, Jennifer Hartswick, one of my favorites was William Tyler Band. Um, it was a great night of music, a lot of special guests. It was pretty cool. That was NXP, WNXP listeners Jeremy, Kaylee, Grant, and Martha Ann. Now, Chris, your venue got a shout out there, and I'm wondering, have you ever been moved to tears at a show at Exit Inn? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I get a little teary-eyed at shows a lot. Um, I, I mean, it happens to me in the car listening to the radio, so that, that that's an easy one for me. It happens to me during when I watch commercials, so I'm with you. So, right. you know, Chris, I understand the property where Exit Inn is located was recently sold, and you all were able to raise money to purchase it from AJ Capital Partners, but they declined your offer. Do you have any idea of why they turned it down? Uh, no, it wasn't an official decline. It, it was no response. Um, so, um, you know, no word from them on, on exactly why they didn't want to entertain that. Um, you know, they have plans. Uh, we don't really know what they are. I mean, the great there, the community or in the greater community at large, the music community doesn't know what those plans are because they, they're not talking about that. Uh, but they obviously don't include us being there. Now, since the sale, there's been an, an historic overlay applied to the property. So, Jeff, can you quickly explain what that means? Sure. A, a historic overlay is through our Metro, Metro Historic Commission, and ultimately that protects the outside of a building. Um, and so it is protected from uh, demolition, but ultimately this conversation is about what goes on inside, how it's operated, and who it's operated for. And so they only put a historic overlay on a portion of the building. They have the the, the corner where, where Chris operates hurry back that does not did not include the historic overlay. Mm. So the foregone conclusion is that that is the ripe potential for redevelopment. At the end of the day, they spent, what, over $6 million on, on this property, and they're going to have to make a return. And so the only way to do that, I believe, is probably for them to have to redevelop that, that piece. And, and then, as Chris said, who's going to run that venue and for whom and how does that fit into our overall music ecosystem? Now, you wrote an op-ed for the Tennessee and that yes. historic overlay de designation 
it really has unintended consequences. Well, it, it does for this property because it, in a way it is subterfuge. Now, I supported the historic overlay. If we can protect that building and its legacy, great. But ultimately, and the impetus for me writing that, uh, that op-ed is to let folks know don't think that just because we're doing a historic overlay that we are doing a cultural preservation as well. Hmm. Um, and for me, preservation doesn't mean just protecting what was yesterday. It's preserving our culture, our ecosystem, how things work in Nashville in supporting the working creatives that ultimately leads to the billions of dollars of economic impact to the city. So with that in mind, when we look at our city, how is the exit in situation emblematic of Nashville and what we're going through right now? As you mentioned with Cannery Row, exit in is, is one example. Uh, Cannery Row closed up. We've heard in the in the trades that uh, Third and Lindsley is going to have to find a new home. Um, this is a very disturbing uh, trend uh, where, where we don't have sustainability of our venues. And so what I'm trying to do is put minds together to be able to study how we can support and sustain not just the venues that we have now, the local independent venues, but also the venues of the future. We want a healthy ecosystem between the, the corporates and, and, the, and the locals because that's Nashville and that's supporting the culture that, like I said, drives, as NSAI says, it all starts with a song. We have to have those places that are the incubators for talent. Mm -hmm. Now, Chris, have you spoken to other venue owners who are in tight spots themselves? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think um, 90 percent, just over 90 percent of Nashville's independent venues lease their spaces. Um, and, and ultimately, uh, all of those venues are likely to face a similar fate as Mercy Lounge and Exen. And I think, you know, that's a, a core issue that we're talking about right here is we have to ensure that uh, these places that are so critical uh, culturally and economically to our city are able to be operated by these trusted culture bearers um, who put the culture first. And uh, as long as those people are leasing their spaces, what we're seeing happen now is just going to continue to cycle through. Now, you're the president of the organization Music Venue Alliance Nashville. Tell me more about what you're working on. Mm. Um, well, um, been working very closely with council member Syracuse, um, uh, on a couple of things right now. Yeah. The, uh, the, the formation of the office was mentioned. So, um, we're excited, uh, to, to see where that leads. I think it's a good first step down a long path that could bring some positive change to our city. Uh, the council member and I have some calls next week with folks who've launched cultural trusts, um, in other cities in the United States. Uh, and this seems to be uh, a leading method uh, by which to ensure these places uh, do what, what I just talked about, which was the property can actually get transferred to the trusted operators um, as opposed to becoming corporatized, which is kind of the trend we're seeing in Nashville right now. Um, you know, we're seeing some relief efforts take place in other cities. Uh, so there, there are uh, the good news is, is that uh, there are methods working in other places that we can use in Nashville uh, to address some of the issues we're experiencing. Um, the bad news is we're a little behind, so uh, we just got to hurry up. Time is of the essence. So, you know, tell me more about how a cultural trust would work. Well, um, baseline, uh, it's just like any other trust concept. Um, so a, a trust would be created, funds would be contributed, 
uh, you know, the nice thing about uh, a trust is uh, when you start to move into the nonprofit sector out of the for-profit sector is, uh, you know, there's additional funding opportunities there and sources of money that as a for-profit business, you don't have access to. So uh, you can lean into uh, these alternative funding methods to fund a trust. And then the trust itself would come in and purchase these properties um, and have a body in place, a board um, that would steer the trust uh, to ensure that these places are continued to operate in the best interest of the culture um, and the creative working class uh, individuals and residents in Nashville um, who play on these stages and work in these places. So, Jeff, you're helping to lead this new office of music, film and entertainment. In what ways is this different from the former mayor, Carl Dean's Music City Music Council? Wonderful question. At the end of the day, what we need to do is to ensure we have a sustainable private-public partnership going forward that can survive across administrations. It doesn't need to be a project of a specific administration, but it needs to be a shared uh, desire of the city going forward to be sustainable. Um, Under Mayor Dean's term, um, it's it's extraordinary that it wasn't really that long ago, but things like affordable housing and and uh, uh, artists being able to afford to live here, small business support. We weren't talking about venue losing venues back then. Mm. Uh, so what we really ultimately need to, need to do is take a look at what worked in the past. Obviously, from an economic development perspective and supporting the brand Music City, those were good things. But we're now at a place where we need to support the underlying culture proactively to ensure that the dream of somebody coming uh, to Nashville with the song in their heart and the drive and the talent to make it happen, that dream needs to stay alive. And if we don't have some proactive policies, programs to, to be able to do that, um, we're going to lose a, a piece of what's special about uh, Music City. And so this office um, is a very good step about sustaining um, what worked before, but also it needs the strategic planning and governance that is going to drive this uh, co-funding model, if you will. Um, it just uh, doesn't need to be a publicly funded model, but private needs to be in there also to hold us both accountable to make sure it is sustained across administrations. So what's the first step for you all? Well, the, the first step was announcing of the creation of the office. And within that is part of this budget that uh, we will be <laughs> passing with, with uh, this month um, is a dedicated director level position. Now that uh, once that passes, then we need to re-engage uh, the industry uh, committee, committee, if, if you will, um, and figure out the governance of 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 this office. And we're all on the same page. Can all uh, dedicate uh, sustainable funds towards it and work towards things like Chris was just talking about. The programs that ultimately are going to support venues, are going to support artists, songwriters, because otherwise. It's going to be forced migration of creatives to cities around us. And they're already starting to nibble at our heels to get a little piece of what we've got. Mm. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Catherine Edwards is a musician and business partner at the venue Dark Matter. For people who've never been, Catherine, what's the vibe like at Dark Matter? Um, so we, uh, you know, specialize in underground music. Um, we are an all ages space. So when you come there, um, you'll see people of all kinds there to see, you know, not necessarily the the names that you've seen before, names that you might know in the future, though. So, <laughs> so uh, from what I understand, Dark Matter is in the process of becoming a nonprofit. Is that right? We are. Yes. So I don't. You know, we don't often think of music venues as nonprofits. So, what difference does that make for you all? 
Yeah, so um, we definitely come at it from a completely, I guess, like a different perspective because we're mostly focused on the arts and um, trying to do what we want to do from just a straight business perspective, like doesn't quite work, you know, when you want to include children who don't drink alcohol, which is the main, uh, you know, income of most music venues, Mm -hmm. when you're not focused on that, it's like, well, how do you pay for, you know, the rent in your building or like to have guest speakers or workshops or any of, you know, any of the things that we have that we want to do because we would like to be more of an umbrella of the arts community in Nashville. So it's that sense of community there. Exactly. You know, yeah. and so is that sense of community that makes like the, the exit in a cultural institution, the cultural institution that it is. But there's times that are changing here in Nashville. Housing costs are up, like the council mm-hmm. member said, and more musicians are no longer being able to afford to live here. So do you all think that the city is at risk of losing its musical soul? Catherine? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, It's already obviously become difficult for anyone to live here. But even if you were to live outside of the city, it's like, well, where are you going to play your music if every independent venue has closed or been bought out, (laughs) you know, by Live Nation or something? So it's like there's not a whole lot of options uh, for people to get started. It's it's a it's a really strange way for a place called Music City also to think about it because you know, you can't have more artists to have in the future if you don't get new people involved. You know, it's like you have to keep the cycle going. There has to be new up and coming artists or else it just becomes stagnant. Chris, what do you think about the risk of losing our musical soul? I think we have to be honest about the fact that that's happening right now, that we're losing pieces of it every day. Uh, people are moving away uh, who are assets um, and part of that soul. Uh, venues um, that are part of that soul are closing. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's happening currently. What's next for Exit In? Well, we're going to have a bunch of great shows up until Thanksgiving. Uh, we're going to enjoy the time that we have left over there. Uh, you know, Exit In's 51 years old. It's had, uh, tw- uh, I guess, 27 owners now, if you count AJ Capital Partners. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it's a magical place. Um, you know, somehow, some way, uh, I-, I hope that uh, it makes it through this. It's been through a lot of challenges and it's 51 years. So uh, we'll finish up our time over there uh, night before Thanksgiving and then spend a month moving out. Um, the future past, that's a mystery. Chris Cobb is co-owner of Exit In. He was joined by Metro Council member Jeff Syracuse. Thanks to you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Catherine Edwards is going to stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll find out how local musicians are feeling about Music City's changing landscape. Don't forget to share your favorite memories for Mercy Lounge, Exit In, and other indie venues in town. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When independent music venues are forced to close, it's not only fans and lovers of live music who miss out, it's also the musicians 
who've depended on these venues, who are losing opportunities to build their audience. My next guests are musicians themselves and are quite familiar with these important spaces. Arielle Bowie and Mel Bryant, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Full disclosure, Arielle is the owner of Melodia Studios, where she teaches piano to our producer, Steve Harush's kids. That's cool. Yes, it is. I've gotten to watch them grow up um, as as my own my own small business has grown here in Nashville, as well as my small independent musical career. Um, and I'm I'm honored that Steve invited me to be a part of the show today. Um, well, we're happy to have you <laughs> with you. us. During her final performance at Mercy Lounge, Nashville artist Tristan took some time in between songs to talk about why she will miss the venue. She met her husband there, for one. Let's listen to a little more of what she said. Tonight, just thinking about how um, growth is not always progress. <laughs> and... Uh, Money is not meaning, and amenities are not culture. <laughs> but we're gonna be all right, because we're just gonna move out and out and out, and out and out, and soon we'll all be living in Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> So we've been hearing that a lot, like musicians having to move further and further away just to afford to live here. Um, Ariel, how does that resonate with you? Uh, oh my goodness, it resonates so much. I used to run Melodia Studio out of my home that I was renting in Germantown in Nashville, and my landlord was raising the rent 10% a year. And um, as a person who was running a business out of my home, I couldn't just live in any location and I couldn't just live in a home with any layout. And I was really under threat of having to move away into a more affordable place, which meant completely shutting down my business. Um, the only way I was able to afford a place to buy was I, I like begged family members, can you lend me a down payment and co-sign on a house for me? Because I might have to move away from Nashville if I can't afford to live here anymore. Mm. And so that was a really real thing. And now that I finally locked in a home and a place, a stable place to have my business, now all of these m music venues are basically experiencing the same thing on a macrocosmic level as the artists themselves looking for places to live on that kind of more microcosmic level. Well, tell me how you're feeling about that, like with the closing of the Cannery Complex and other venues. Um, I am in a really emotional space. Uh, it's a space of mourning and grieving. Um, and I told myself I wouldn't cry on the air today, but, um, it's been a really long, slow process. Um, and for me, it really started with the venue Fond Object. Um, it was mostly a record store that held events in their backyard and in, in their record store. And that was kind of the place that felt like the most like home to me. It mm. was artists always making really cool art, no matter what level of popularity they were. And someone who recognized me as an independent artist, they, they were like, you are not just straightforward Americana. You're like a cool weirdo, Ariel. And like just having, <laughs> just having these cool people kind of endorse my art and who I was, um, really helped to form many more relationships in the artistic community here and it's it's like 
almost like a spiritual place. I don't, I don't go to, um, you know, church or anything like that, but I feel like what you build in these spaces is almost like a spiritual community where mm-hmm. you're sharing your most vulnerable soul. We're talking about soul and it has been a soul crushing time. Well, tell me, tell me, Mel, how do you feel about the closing of Cannery and other places? I actually second um, the feelings about Fond Object. I actually played like one of the last shows there. Like I'd found out that they were going to be bought up like weeks after we'd played there. And I remember feeling like I was at a cookout that happened to have music at it. Like, you know, everyone was talking. It felt like a big old family. And there was some sort of like crushing metaphoric resonance to hearing it get bought out and then immediately seeing it get completely demolished. And now you drive by and it's rubble. Hmm. And, um, you know, there's a part of me that wants to feel hopeless like that. And there's another part of me that wants to remain hopeful about people's love of independent artists and independent venues and the fact that there's more of us coming every day and that the more that we are, the more you know power we have to be able to make this city look like what we want it to look like in terms of being actually music city. Well, tell me about your love of music venues. Why are they so important to you as a musician? Well, first and foremost, they are our livelihood. <laughs> mm. We wouldn't be able to do what we are doing at all without them because there's no other places for us to be able to get in contact with to play at. And the accessibility is so important to me in terms of any kind of person from any economic background being able to make and play music and go listen to music. Um, Because, you know, I, like most people, will go to see a show at Bridgestone and it'll be a couple hundred bucks and uh, a lot of people can't afford that kind of thing but everyone should be able to afford to see live music and independent venues make that possible. Catherine Edwards is still with us. Now Catherine I understand you started off booking shows before you started playing music yourself. So did that af- yeah. did that affect your approach to the kinds of venues you wanted to play? Um, definitely because um, I obviously come from a much more like DIY background. Um, So my levels of like the things that I look for in uh, venues to play, um, mostly it's like how, how much are they involved in their community? How much do they seem like they care about the artists that they bring in and the patrons that come to the shows, you know, that's always, and how, how do they take care of these people while they're in their building? If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil E. Colonna. We're talking with independent musicians, Ariel Bowie, Mel Bryant, and Catherine Edwards about what they love about independent music venues in our town. Now, multi-instrumentalist Josh Blaylock couldn't join us today because he's out on the road, but he grew up in Nashville. One of his favorite independent venues might not be quite as nice as the Ryman, but it's still very important to him. Let's listen. I was always going to shows there um, and then and seeing like bands that I like, I don't know, back when you still listen to, you know, CDs on CD players, there were so many bands that I followed 
and had CDs of that I would go to concerts at the end to see. Finally getting to play at that place a bunch of times while I was in college. And I think it's just a lot of emotion kind of all entangled together that that place will always just be nostalgic and it doesn't always sound great. You know, it's just like a kind of hole in, hole in the wall kind of, kind of place, but it's, it's just got so much history built into it. Um, and then whenever I go back, I kind of get to relive a lot of that stuff. Now, Catherine Edwards is still with us. Catherine, what makes independent venues so different from big corporate places to play? Uh, well, mostly because the, the bottom line should mostly be about the artists that you're bringing in and, you know, making your music community larger. Um, and so I feel like the corporate places usually, they generally just work with people who are already well established. And so, you know, if you book it, they'll come. Like there's not a whole lot of taste making or, you know, really involvement in the community at all to, to book, you know, like any huge act, <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. like, it sells itself. <laughs> we got a couple. Like, Sorry, we got a couple comments from Twitter. Tyler Blankenship on Twitter says, they fondly remember the time when local artist Terror Pigeon and Meth Dad turned the Mercy Lounge into a blanket for it. I wish I was around for that. And Anne McHugh says, tweets us, she says her favorite gig at Mercy Lounge was opening with her band Tony Joe White. It was a packed house, early Americana Fest days during those times. That just really great memories. But I want to ask this. You know, I feel like it's important to say that none of you would really turn down an opportunity to headline at, headline at Bridgestone Arena. Am I right? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I would say. So. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn it down. But the chances of it being offered to me versus being able to play at a space like Mercy Lounge or Dark Matter or something like that is, you know, the 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 barriers, the gatekeepers that it takes to get your um, your career to that level. Booking agents, all the catch twenty twos. You already got to be making a lot of money to be able to like even play those venues. Um, it's a it's a nice dream, but. <laughs> it's a far one. What about the intimate vibe that those independent music venues really give you all? Area. Yeah, I would say, honestly, as a music lover and an attender of concerts, I have had significantly more enjoyable times at small venues than I have at arenas. Um, I've honestly come to really not enjoy arena shows nearly as much because of how distant it is, because of how expensive it is, because the crowds don't seem to care nearly as much. I've been to shows where no one is even moving, as opposed to the ones at places like Dark Matter. People are jumping and screaming and crying, and you're talking to the musicians themselves, you're meeting other musicians. It's just so much more of an accurate representation of the music community of Nashville. Because those big venues, you're getting touring acts and their large major label touring mm -hmm. acts. Mm -hmm. um, with the smaller venues, you're getting touring acts, but you're getting independent touring acts that are in the same position as you, but yeah. from other places. You get to make those sort of national connections in a way that still feels really intimate and like a small 
community. That's artist Mel, Br- Mel Bryant. I want to thank you, Ariel Bowie and Catherine Edwards, for being with us. So it's Friday. That means it's time for me to hop out of the studio and ride shotgun. Today, I'm meeting up with Cass Hart at the venue Cobra, where I first saw her perform. Buckle up. I am Cass Hart, or my artist name is Cass Hart, and I am an independent artist in town as well as an entrepreneur. Um, I have a music school that I run with one of my best friends. A music school? Yeah. You teach little ones music? I teach little ones, big ones, old ones, young ones, anyone who wants to learn music. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I really try to cater lessons to the students. Such a common story is, oh, you know, I loved the piano, but I hated my music lessons and it just wasn't any fun. And like... I, I know, like, I didn't have fun a lot of the times growing up. Who was your teacher? My mom. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Was she, was she super strict or she, something? She saw my potential. Mm-hmm. And from there, yes, she was super strict. Okay. <laughs> but it was out of love. What type of music would you say you do? I would say that I am an influence of, like, jazz and R&B and neo-soul. Here at the Cobra, we're in the parking lot at the Cobra, which is a live music venue. Now, I saw you in September. Yes. And I'm sitting down having a drink, and out of the side door is just just this, this sound. And I go in and I see you on stage, at your keyboard, and it was just this. I call it this rainbow of sound. <laughs> it was a fusion. I feel like a little bit of rock was in there a little yeah, bit, yeah. you know, and it was soul and it was jazzy and it was funky. And I'm like, what? And I got super <laughs> hyped, broke out my phone, became a follower of yours yeah. immediately. And I, I just texted and sent video to my friends like, well, I'm in Nashville. This is Music City, baby. All the little things and every song I sing has been touched by you. Okay, so in thinking about this intimate spot, the Cobra, mm-hmm. and there are other intimate spots in town, mm-hmm. but not as many as there used to be. Correct. It's sad. I've been kind of furiously working on my debut album, and I always just thought that booking a release show at one of these smaller to mid-sized venues would just be possible, because it has been possible. You know, I'm fortunate to have friends and a network and a community of people who know me but I don't have so many to fill Brooklyn Bowl like right off the bat and it's kind of intimidating to think about like well where am I going to play if all these places that once seemed so accessible are just gone. What are your, some of your favorite venues to perform at? Ooh, I do love the five spot. I've played this five spot a lot and it just feels like cozy and it always sounds really good the people are nice. I've enjoyed playing at Urban Cowboy. The booking person, her name is Carly. She 
is super open-minded and she allows for more kind of experimental music there okay which is amazing there's also a place that i hold near and dear to my heart flamingo which is actually a cocktail lounge but the owner angela she's just a total visionary and she has made and created this space that's like adaptable yeah sid golds is a piano bar why have i not been there oh you'll love it people they have a pianist who plays and it's like karaoke piano bar so heck yeah that's my jam i don't sing any of the songs I love karaoke. Karaoke's a moment to get wild. Yeah. But I'm like, hold on. I'm in Music City. And Music City karaoke, you you better come with it. You know what? I do disagree. Because I enjoy karaoke so much. And I enjoy when my friends do karaoke. And I think it wouldn't hurt for everybody to have a healthy dose of just being a person and having fun without the expectation of you got to be killing okay all right i hear you cat <laughs> you've convinced me <laughs> well good lou rawls is my jam also another one of my uh karaoke songs because this is how crazy i am the theme to the love boat stop it let's hear it love exciting and new come aboard we're expecting you and love won't hurt anymore. It's an open <laughs> smile on a sandy shore. It's love. Oh, yeah, I love what, it. What do you mean you're not good enough to do karaoke in oh, Nashville? <laughs> okay, I'll try. It's just like, you know, I've seen some people. And I'm like, oh, man, they're bringing the house down. And yeah. What have you. All right. Bye. Bye. Great. Baby, if you'd ever wonder, wonder whatever became of me. I'm living on there out here in Nashville. This is Nashville. Thanks for rolling with me on that one. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tune in again Monday at noon. We're talking about the $2 billion price tag on a new Titan Stadium. Also, next week, we're going to have some fun. We've got cats and dogs, hot chicken, and gaming. You won't want to miss it. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Celia Gregory, Paige Flager, Jerry Pentecost, Larissa Maestro, and Olivia Skibelli. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Le Colonna. <laughs>